committed to sharing cultural diversity through food. Welcome to El Paso Food Voices. Welcome, I'm Meredith E. Abarca, your hostess for today's episode. El Paso Food Voices explores El Paso, Texas food landscapes by gathering food-based stories from our residents. This project offers a taste of a living history that speaks to ethnic and racial cross-cultural connections. If we are what we eat, we are committed to highlight the food-based culture and history of the city. In this spirit, let's begin our conversation with two of my former students. Our focus for today is on their introduction to food as an academic studies in the humanities and the impact this area of scholarly work has had in the personal and professional lives. Um, on their views of El Paso food landscape and the opportunities it has opened for them. Let's begin our conversation with our guest, Dr. Consuelo Salas and PhD student Joshua Lopez. Welcome both to the show. Can we begin a little bit by you telling us, telling our guests who you are, um, about your family, about where you're from? Um, so let's just begin there a little bit. So Consuelo, can you start? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Dr. Consuelo Salas. I'm an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Uh, I was born in El Paso, and I was uh, fortunate enough to do all three of my degrees here at UTEP. Uh, so I was able to spend about 31 years here in El Paso before having to venture out into the rest of the United States. But El Paso is home in a number of different ways, uh, family, community, culture. Um, but yeah, that's that's a little bit of who I am. And I am Joshua Lopez. I am a first-year PhD student at the University of North Texas uh, in food history. And I'm also uh, the 2019 recipient of the Julia Child uh, Fellowship. And uh, I was also born and raised here in El Paso, Texas. Um, and I did my bachelor's and my master's here at UTEP. And being back for the first time after leaving just for one semester, it, it's been really great. And it reminds me why El Paso is so important to me. Um, the weather, the landscape and the food and, of course, my family. Um, I, I grew up here, so it's, it's, just, it's really great to be home. Oh, it's great to have you both here. And, and this is a very special show for me today um, to be speaking to two of my former students um, who were, in fact, introduced to the idea of food studies in my courses. Um, so that's the next topic that I wanted to discuss. Um, a number of universities um, in the United States, Europe, and Latin America offer academic degrees in what is now known as food studies. Uh, this is something that is happening within the last 20 years, probably. Um, there's not such, such a formal degree in the, in here at the University of Texas at El Paso, or UTEP, as we call it. However, both of you were introduced, as I said, to this area of scholarship um, here. So I would like to just talk a little bit about your journey. If you can just share with us, you know, take your time and share with us your journey about being introduced to the field of food studies. Um, and what was it about it that hooked you, so to speak, to make this a focus of your careers? Sure. So I took a food studies class uh, the summer before I graduated in 2013 from my undergraduate degree, and it was in anthropology. And it was the first time I'd ever seen food as a subject of study. So I was, I was intrigued and it was summer. So I said, why not? Let's try it. And I remember one day specifically, there was, you know, food studies in the humanities. You know, this is an anthropology class. So we looked at social sciences a lot, but we had a day scheduled for the humanities and you were the guest speaker for, for that class. And 
up until then, I'd already been interested in the conversations with food studies. But when you spoke about memory and knowledge um, with food, that is when um, kind of the light bulb went off and I got really excited, especially just because being in literature, I took a lot of American and British literature classes in the English department and they were great classes. I really, I really enjoyed them, but sometimes I wondered if it was just me who didn't understand a lot of like the theories and the secondary sources I was reading. But when you introduced food studies, I began to look at the world differently <laughs> through food and it started to make sense. So feminist theory, um, questions about race and ethnic identity, like those things started to make a lot more sense to me when I thought about it through the lens of food. And so that is just what drew me. And so it was my last semester, the, the following semester is my last semester as an undergrad, but I knew I was going to go into a, a master's program. So I, I hoped that maybe I would be able to study with you um, in the in the graduate program in English when I applied. And I, I got to do, I took two graduate courses with you. And the first one was in uh, uh, Afro-Latina food studies. And we created a, a virtual museum. And we, uh, we talked a lot about food and memory and history. And again, just those questions about what food means to people and how it connects us to the past, that really drew me in a lot. And, and, and it, it excited me about the potential for the different types of knowledges that come from food, especially. Um, I felt that it wasn't just a, an academic study, that there were a lot of people who had something to contribute about food and our knowledge about food. And so that um, that really hooked me again. And, and that is why I wanted to do my PhD in food studies. I wanted to hear people's stories. You invited me to do a couple of uh, interviews for El Paso Food Voices and hearing people talk about food, seeing how emotional they get, seeing how proud they get when they talk about food and their food knowledges. It just, it just, I wanted to do this work. So uh, I'm, I'm continuing on at UNT in food history. I took an oral history class this semester and I'm hoping to, to kind of do what you have taught me to do is listen, to listen to people and the things that they have to say about food. Consuela? Uh, so it's kind of similar to Josh, but I was introduced to food studies as an undergraduate. Um, for anybody listening out there, I was the perfect undergraduate student in that I took the intro to literary studies in my senior year of uh, undergraduate degree. Um, but uh, that's just how it happened. But it was fortunate because uh, you, Meredith, were teaching the course. And since I had already kind of gone through all of the courses that I needed to take, this was kind of one of the last ones that I needed to require for the degree. And so when I entered into the course, it was just kind of like, let's do this, let's get it, let's get the credits for this, and let's move on. Um, but I remember, I don't remember exactly if it was the first day, but very early on in the semester, I remember thinking, we're going to study literary theory through food. What exactly is that going to look like? And I was really hesitant at first. But there was one day where you had us do an assignment to kind of just examine our food landscapes around us. And so you asked a very simple activity, which is that in the next time that we were driving to campus, take a look at what food choices are available to us. And so I grew up in the northeast uh, part of town. And so I took the drive from my house in the northeast all the way to campus. And I suddenly started to realize that there was a huge disparity in the types of food options that were available 
on that route, on that commute to school. Um, and it was just really obvious. So like in the Northeast, there was a lot of fast food options back then. It's changed now, but back then there weren't very many grocery stores um, in the Northeast. And I started to notice what types of grocery stores were available in the Northeast versus what types of grocery stores were available closer to campus and then further on the West side. So I just started to realize that I had kind of been swimming in this bubble without being fully conscious of what was kind of happening around me. And I started to realize that it was through food that you could examine a lot of really dense theoretical concepts. So I found that, like Josh, I found that a lot of that uh, literary theory was super theoretically based and it was didn't seem to really kind of connect with me except through food. When we started to examine, for example, like structuralism, post-structuralism, Marxism, through the lens of food, it suddenly became very tangible and real to me. And it was also really helpful because then it started to just kind of highlight what was already happening. Like these kinds of inequities or these kinds of things were already circulating around me and I just had not been attuned to them. And so food just made it very visible uh, to me and it was able to kind of two things like it allowed me to see, to understand it in a more practical way, but then it also allowed me to just see it, period. So to make something visible that I had kind of glanced over and that hadn't been invisible to me prior. So I was hooked. I suddenly was um, thrown in and I was like, how could you not study these things through these concepts? How could you not study food through these concepts? Um, so that was the first activity. Then the second one that you had us do was to bring in a food of a family member that meant the most to us. And so, um, again, I'm an undergraduate student. And so... Uh, I was thinking about what food was the most memorable at the time. And it was really serendipitous because at the time I had a favorite uncle who every Easter made jello eggs. And I found them to be real. I was like, how do you do these? Like, how do you make the jello stay? And so I used the assignment as an excuse to kind of learn his secret of how he made his jello eggs. Uh, and so that was a fun kind of experiment. And he passed a few years later. Uh, after that, and I was really glad that I had had the opportunity to kind of do that in an academic setting of going into my family and connecting with their knowledges and bringing it into the academic setting and capturing it since I lost him uh, a few years after that. Uh, so that was kind of the introduction, and that was in one class that was super transformative for me. Um, and then after that, I just decided to continue working on food studies. I started to see food everywhere, uh, like Josh mentioned. Um, I called it like it was suddenly I had like pink colored uh, sunglasses on. Like suddenly I saw the world completely differently through the lens of food. And so I continued into my master's degree, uh, did uh, a, my, my master's project uh, in looking at two pieces of literature through the lens of food. And then I continued on into my doctorate and I was dead set on trying to connect the field of rhetoric and composition with food studies. And together we kind of made that happen. And that's what I'm doing now in my professional academic career. I use, uh, I blend the, vi the visuals with food and I use that to kind of think about how do we create cultures? How do we create perceptions of cultures through the images surrounding their food? So it all started in a, a late blooming undergraduate class, but it's blossomed into a, a full-fledged career that I, I find really fulfilling and enriching. Wow, <clears throat> that's a, quite a journey for the both of you. Um, when I started with food, when I was uh, uh, in graduate school, like I said earlier, the the feel of food study had not was not yet um, as prevalent as it is now. Um, but one of the things that I that I enjoyed um, is this idea that our everyday life it involves food. 
um, it's connected to everything else, right? Um, and one of the reasons why I've enjoyed teaching food studies uh, or through the lens of food is because it makes, you, you both have mentioned this comment that it makes this thing we call theory, which can be very abstract, very tangible and practical. And we realize how Marxism, this concept is actually in fact connected to our lives and, 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 and feminism and all of these structures. We are participating in them and through food we can make them um, visible. Um, you both have said this already, but I want to see if, imagine that you're explaining to somebody, I don't know, you're teaching a course on, on food studies 101. How would you each define this term that we keep using in this podcast quite a bit, food studies? So if you can define this in a few sentences or can give an example, how, how would you do it um, that is different from what you already told, told us? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll try to answer that first. So I think the way that I've tried to explain it uh, to students that I've taught, but also to family members who are just interested, I say that I put food center, and then I see the network of relationships that are surrounding that food. Uh, so if we look at a plate of food, uh, there's a, a number of different stories that could be told. Um, first, there's the familial, let's say it's a home-cooked meal, or if you're at a restaurant, um, but there's a number of different narratives in that food. So let's say you're looking at the plate of food. You can think about what are your tastes? Where have your um, your tastes come from? What cultural backgrounds or travel or experiences have you had that have kind of shaped your taste that allowed you to maybe choose that particular dish over others? But even looking at the history then behind those. So like what are the recipes behind them? Who created them? Um, where are the ingredients from? How have those ingredients circulated globally to where you can kind of mash them together into making that one particular dish? Like, can you get all of those ingredients on that dish locally or did they come from somewhere? Is there a network of distribution behind them? Um, but then another level is looking at like, how are you eating that dish? So is it on a plate? Are you using a fork? Are you using different types of utensils? Um, what is the setting in which you're eating? Who are you eating with? Under what context? So the way that I define food studies is putting food at the center and then looking at the network of relationships in a number of different ways of what, how that, what that food means, how it's gotten there, and how you're interacting with it. Similar uh, to what Consuelo was saying, I think I would ask the question or, or kind of present it as like food studies asks us, what are we really eating? And... I, I think I would also ask, you know, do we ever think of listening to our food? Um, as Consuelo mentioned, uh, our foods have a lot of narratives, a lot of stories. There's the historical stories, there's cultural stories. And so I think I would probably open up a class on food studies with those two questions, like, you know, presenting it as food studies is inviting us to engage with food in a way that we we have to listen and we have to really think about, like, what is it that we're really eating? Is that just a plate of, you know, huevos con chorizo with monster cheese? Or is that something else? What is it? Who do we need to talk to to, to get to know, uh, to get that information? So I think I would present it in that way. Okay. You, you bring a concept that I would like to hear more about. This idea of, from both of you, this idea of listening to food. Um how else can we, can, can you give me some concrete examples as to how do we listen to food? Um, because when you say that, I'm thinking not only in terms of the stories that are embedded, the cultural stories and the historical stories that, that you both are, are mentioning, the political stories. Um, but I'm also thinking of the little aspect of cooking, of actually making something. Food makes noise. So I don't know if, if you were referring to that way of listening or if that kind of listening 
um, is also integral to how we understand food. So, so the listening in terms of using our bodies to listen. When I took a, a graduate level course with you, you had us write a food memoir and we had to present um, that dish to the class. And so I chose uh, Chocolate Abuelita. And so my, I guess my engagement with food voice comes from, from this particular story. So when I, uh, when I came out to, to my mom, it was, it was kind of an emotional moment and uh, we didn't really talk. As soon as I said the words, you know, like I'm gay, uh, we didn't talk. And um, I rem- I, I'll remember that night, especially because I used that food memoir for my statement of purpose to get into graduate school. So um, I'm, I'm sitting at the kitchen table and my mom is kind of like moving around the kitchen. I don't want to look at her. I don't know. I don't want to like look to see what she's doing. I'm scared. And uh, I just hear her, you know, walking around the kitchen, pulling out pots and pans. And then all of a sudden I hear, you know, the gas uh, to the stove turn on and then the flame. And, you know, you, you uh, or I could hear the, 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 you know, the milk being poured into, into the pot. And then I can smell the the chocolate being melted and and the 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 aromas that come with the the spices that are in the chocolate and so I knew she was making chocolate bolita and then you know she gave it to me and she just told me you know good night don't stay up too late and then she went to bed uh, maybe about five or six years later um, we were at the the cemetery we were visiting my grandma my mom's mom and my my mom uh, you know. She, she likes to tell us stories about our grandma. And so I never, I never knew my grandma, my mom's mom. She passed away before I was born. So I, I asked her, you know, like, so what do you remember most of, uh, uh, you know, of Grandma Lola? And, you know, she said, well, you know, your grandma never told us uh, that she loved us, you know, her and her siblings. She, she was always really tough. You know, she never really said it. But when she made us chocolate abuelita, atoles, you know, these, these nice drinks, uh, these comforting warm drinks, my mom said that that's that's when I knew that she was telling us that she loved us. And so, of course, I I go back to the night that I came out. And, you know, I always think of how like me and my mom were dead silent and we didn't speak to each other that night. And I realized that, you know, because of that family history with those kinds of drinks and and especially, you know, she said chocolate abuelita, um, that my mom was actually speaking to me in the language of her mom, which is, you know, through this kind of really this hospitable act of, you know, just serving me a drink and making me feel like, you know, you're, you're still my son and I love you. And so for me, I, that's where food voice, I, I kind of see it happening is it was the actions that she did and she didn't, she didn't say it in words, but, you know, she said it with, um, that history, you know, that her mom passed on to her and communicated with her. So. And that's what I refer to as the, as the, as the language, as you said, food voice. Food itself speaks, not with the language that we use, but in, in, in taste, in warmth of the, of the milk. Do you have a, um, some similar story or something that, that in, in which you have found out, Consuelo, um, or, or that it could illustrate the voice of food itself or, or different ways to listen to food? Yeah, I think that's kind of – so I just want to say that that was beautiful, Josh. That yes. was – uh, I was tearing up over here listening to your story because I think, that, and it segues a little bit into what I was thinking, is that food is a form of communication. And I don't think that um, when you say that at first, people are kind of like, what are you, what do you mean by that? Like, But food is a language. Food has conventions to it. There are 
certain situations in which you eat certain foods. There are certain situations in which somebody will prepare foods to communicate something to somebody else. And so I feel like food is another form of communication for people. Um, and they're, they're pulling on their previous cultural backgrounds and trying to use that as a way to bridge their sentiment with somebody else. And so the, sometimes words, we don't have the words to kind of encapture what we're trying to say to somebody else. But if you prepare that type of food, that giving of that food to somebody else has more meaning than any words that you could put together. And so it's, it's symbolic, it's highly symbolic, and it's cultural, but it's all wrapped up in kind of our previous experiences. But you'll know as the recipient of the message what that, what that is meaning, what that symbolizes to you. And, and that person is trying to communicate something powerful that maybe words can't fully capture. So I think when I think about food voice, I think it's kind of that concept of how does food as the, the, the thing itself, how is that the medium of communication? A minute ago, you shared your story of your uncle uh, and the recipe. Um, do you have another story that you can share, another personal story in which food communicates that way to you? Yeah, I think there's a number of different stories. Um, I'm thinking specifically, the one that comes to mind is my grandmother's uh, rice pudding. So we called it rice pudding in my family, arroz con leche. Um, but my grandmother used to make it, and I it's just a distinct memory. I, I remember I was very small, very, very young, and my parents were pushing me to try to figure out how to make it. But, and, you know, and everybody has this kind of tradition in their family where my grandmother never measured anything. She kind of just put it all together in the pot. And so I'm sitting there and she's moving really quickly and I'm little and I'm trying to just kind of figure out like, one, what are the ingredients that she's using? And then two, how much is she using and in what order does she put them in? So we used to get together for Sunday dinners at my grandmother's house when I was a kid. And during the winter, arroz con leche was always a part of that. So and if it wasn't, my cousins and I would kind of guilt my grandmother into making it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just remember trying to watch her. So I have this very vivid memory of watching her and trying to kind of commit it to memory. But what's funny is that I don't remember the recipe itself. I remember watching her. So that's actually the memory that I have of it. It's a very embedded memory of just kind of standing there watching her do it, but not really paying attention to what she was doing. But um, it was her way of kind of showing that same kind of love for us. She used that rice pudding to kind of show her love for her grandchildren. Um, and we knew that. And so um, I have some aunts who have since then tried to kind of, when my grandmother passed, they've tried to kind of uh, step in and continue to have that recipe in the household. And their rice uh, puddings are really great, but it's still like there's still that something missing that's my grandmother's. And so um, it's still kind of like a major holidays, like Christmas specifically, that was always a staple. So that's something that's missing. And so it's in that absence that I remember her mm-hmm. now. So in, in, in listening to what is there, but also remembering like what is not there, there can also be something communicated, I think. Right. Both of your stories, your personal stories, um, highlight the, the point of how food communicates through the senses, right? Through, through, through the smell, through, through, like you say, you don't know the, the exact ingredients, but you have that, the, the feel in the kitchen. Um, so that's one aspect in which food, I think, does communicate is through the senses. Um, I want to move our conversation a little bit outside our familial or your family uh, recollections of how your your scholarship, your studies in in, in, in um your academic studies in food um, has impacted your your family and move a little bit to ask you 
while you both were still living in El Paso, because I know that you, you live in different places, how does an academic journey uh, or the academic uh, exploration of food impacted the way in which you view the landscape, the, the food landscape in El Paso, um, the food that is provided in El Paso, the, the challenges that living in the desert uh, creates in terms of food and in particular neighborhoods? So basically, I want to know in what ways you are seeing, you mentioned earlier, Consuelo, about the dances, right? Putting a different set of classes and, and looking differently. Um, the community itself, the, the, the food community uh, or the food landscape uh, here in El Paso. It, it made me pay attention to the ways in which the, the that various communities in El Paso are resilient. I think at one point, I I think I was paying too much attention to the part of the story where like, oh, this 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 area is you know a food desert, um, and and they don't have access to certain foods, and so you know I, I started to think more about like about that, and and I think that that's an important story to listen to. But then at the same time, I felt like I was also missing out on like areas where there was a response to that. Um, so I learned about community gardens. Um, I, I learned about one grub, which used to be the mustard seed at one point. Um, and they had a community garden and it was in one of those neighborhoods where, you know, access to um, access to fresh produce was was little to none. And so you see areas like this, I think, um, Cafe Mayapan, mm -hmm. right? I think they also have a, a garden, and and they they cook uh, vegetarian, uh, Mexican vegetarian and vegan options. So um, I think I think through thinking about food, I started to to learn more about the the issues and the problems. But then it also started to highlight for me the responses and the ways that you know people were taking charge of their own um, access to food and and saying you know what like we're going to try this now. Um, and so I, I, I began to really appreciate that and pay attention more to the stories of resilience mm -hmm. um, that, yes, this is happening, but then this is also happening in response to that. And one grub, you mean one grub community? Yes, uh, one grub restaurant. community, yes. Mm -hmm. Consuelo? So kind of similar to what Josh was saying, I think uh, the painter Tom Lee had a poem ascribed with one of his paintings, and I think I think it's Tom Lee. But it's essentially the the poem along with the painting is that uh, why people ask why you would want to grow up in this landscape. Um, why would you grow up in a place that's so hot and dry? Um, but it's the that there is a unique beauty that comes out of such a harsh environment. And I think that that is true of the landscape, but also the people that come out of this community. Um, there's a beauty to what you can do with limited resources available to you. But also it's kind of thinking about how do we frame limited resources like El Paso as a region, El Paso Juarez as a region has a lot of different types of food available to us that we may not through uh, different uh, generations that knowledge may have been lost. But there's a lot of different types of foods that are available to us that aren't available anywhere else and that hold a special nutritional value for us as a people, but also just Culturally and historically, these are the foods of which we we were raised on. So I'm thinking specifically about like nopales and tunas um, and things like that uh, that are you're not going to find those once you leave this de desert region um, in a natural kind of space. But those are really high nutrient rich foods that don't have that kind of impact um, as other types of foods do. But they're still nutritious and they're 
from this region. And so I think about like, what are the types, it's kind of piggybacking on what Josh said, what are the types of resilience or what can still flourish here, even under these harsh conditions? But I think also the the border, the concept of a border between El Paso and Juarez also kind of uh, distorts what the landscape is of the region. Because I think of us as kind of a, a whole space. We are one region in these two communities. And so in both of those areas, there are different types of traditions that maybe are uncommon to other parts of the United States, but that are unique to us. And so for food here in these spaces, I think there's just a beauty in what can be harvested or what can be produced within those limited spaces. Now that you both do not live in El Paso, and you're consultant in Charlottesville, North Carolina, and you're in Denton, Texas, and since we're speaking about the foods of El Paso, what are the things that you've missed the most in terms of the food that you can get here? I'm going to list several <laughs> and in no, in no particular order uh, like of importance. Well, maybe this first one, but my mom's green chicken enchiladas. Uh, but I miss good pan dulce. Um, I miss hatch green chiles. Uh, I miss uh, the types of chorizo that we can get here. And we can get, like, asadero cheese is not, I realize asadero cheese is not a very common type of cheese. It's a very regionally specific type of cheese. Uh, so when you try to explain that to somebody, it's like, what? Uh, Munster, I miss Munster, but we can get Munster wherever you are, but it's just super expensive. So I miss being able to just kind of go and get it. Um, but that's the other thing, too, like the availability of those types. So like nopales, tunas, things like that. Like you can still find them, but... The, red avail the readily availability of it, how readily available those <laughs> foods are, is just so much more difficult. Like, it was just such a shock to move from here to there. And I actually, before I moved to Charlotte, I went uh, and did like a house hunting tour. And I was a part of that. There was the uh, there was a Southern Food Alliance having a food symposium serendipitously in Charlotte the summer before I moved. And they were concentrating specifically on Mexican foodways. And so I was able to kind of get a, a quick snapshot of the Mexican food landscape in Charlotte. And so I, I remember coming home and telling my husband, we're going to be okay because they <laughs> will find our way there. Uh, but it's still, it's just very different. It's a different type of Mexican food. Um, something that was also super interesting is that their Mexican food is regionally based. So they're from all different parts of Mexico, which made me start to think that the food that I'm used to is actually Northern Mexican food. And it wasn't until I left and came back that I could name that. Um, and it's just a different, it's a unique type of food, like brisket, uh, the type of uh, fixings that we have with that. Like those are charro beans. Those are very regionally specific to us, I think. And so just having the ingredients readily available to be able to recreate those, like, that's okay. what I miss. <laughs> and similar to Consuelo, I, I also miss uh, chorizo, specifically the Peyton brand. Um, and asadero cheese from Lincoln's Dairy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I do, I'm leaving El Paso today. And so in my car right now in an ice chest, there is <laughs> chorizo and, uh, and asadero cheese in, in the trunk of my car. Um, I miss also the availability of serrano peppers because there's a lot of jalapenos when I go into the grocery store, but sometimes they're immediately out of serrano peppers. And I think like if that were to happen at a Walmart here in El Paso, I can just go to Big Eight or an Albertsons or somewhere else because I, I feel like serrano peppers are more 
like easily avail- available, as Consuelo said. Um, and I, I, li- I like that chile just because it's not it's not as it's not like the same spice as a as a jalapeno. It's there's more of a flavor to it, and I just like to bite into them too and eat them fresh like that. <laughs> um, and I also miss uh, my partner Hugo his uh, his salsas. He makes really good salsas. It's annoying when he makes it because like. You know, he toasts the chile and like I go into coughing fits, but I kind of miss that. Like it makes it feel like home and like waking up on a Saturday morning and he's making, you know, scrambled eggs and with it a salsa and, and like, his, the you know, I, I miss being like, I do kind of, even though it's annoying, I do miss the coughing fits, like, cause it <laughs> meant that a good salsa was on its way. Um, so those are the foods that I, that I miss from El Paso. Okay. Well, thank you for that. I have two final questions <clears throat> and one it has to do with going back to food studies as, a, as an area of research. Because, well, you're already an assistant professor, so you already have a research agenda. And, and Josh, as a PhD student, you're developing. In a few um, uh, moments, can you tell us what is, it, what is that research agenda? What is it that you, you as scholars are trying to accomplish with food studies? So through food, in my particular research agenda, through food, what I'm trying to make visible is how we, how through representation we can limit certain cultural groups so um, or how certain cultural groups can be limited Um, so specifically I'm looking at I started my research here in El Paso uh, but I was looking at what types of representations are associated with Mexican food specifically Um, since then I've kind of branched out to Latinx foods but here in El Paso was specifically focused on Mexican food and that's kind of where I started that was where I was looking but um, I started there and, and I was trying to figure out how do we come to understand certain markers as being indicative of Mexican. So if you think about like looking at sombreros and serapes, how is it have those images come to be indicators of Mexican food and food culture? Um, and since then, it's kind of evolved from that. That's where I started. But since then, it's kind of evolved into thinking about how have people kind of made space and ways in creating community through these markers. So there are always different audiences from which these symbols are trying to communicate. And that can be outsider uh, groups or that can be insider groups. But what messages are uh, people sending through the images that are associated with their foods um, and what kind of messages can customers be attuned to or tap into? Um, and that's one kind of way of doing that. And then branching out again to that larger of how have people looked, how have they created food spaces and food communities and how have they grown those communities? So if you move somewhere new and you're trying to establish yourself, you're trying to find what grocery stores sell what and you're trying to figure out where can you find the ingredients that you're used to, how, as a business owner, are you communicating that to your clientele? And how are you communicating that, hey, this is a space where you can come and find those foods? Um, and so for me, food studies has branched out into the community. Um, it's through food that I have been able to kind of create community partnerships, not only in El Paso, but where I am now. And it's it's a kind of a way to get started in talking to folks. So through food, you can kind of just immediately start conversations. You can build relationships. You can kind of think about what are you familiar with? What am I familiar with? How do they kind of overlap? What are similarities? Um, and so my research agenda is looking at all of those different nuances surrounding food 
And how do you use food as a way of building community? And in that way of preparing food, sharing food, but also how do we visually communicate those things out to different audiences? Okay. Josh? And uh, for me, mine is kind of a continuation from my uh, my master's thesis, just a, a kind of a lot different now that I think about it. Um, for my master's thesis, I, I wrote about the relationship between fathers and sons and how like food mediated that. Um, but going back into, into school, cause I, I wasn't in school for, for two years, two or three years and going back and like revisiting some of these ideas and some of the, uh, the, the stories that I read. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm really curious about queer food stories and it kind of stems from the, the, the story that I shared earlier about, um, Chocolate Abolita, my coming out story and how food is an integral part of that. And so I I want to I want to hear more stories um, from people who identify as queer or you know somewhere along the LGBTQ um, spectrum to see what what other stories are out there because I I think that food is important um, to everyone and so um, this semester this past semester um, I I was I was lucky enough to stumble upon some sources that I never knew existed. Um, like uh, uh, an anthology called Queer in Atslan, which is an anthology of poetry and and uh, memoirs uh, by uh, queer Chicano writers. And in there, there are three uh, food-based stories. And, and it was great to hear and to read some of those. One of them was, was called Chile Rellenos, and it was a coming out story. And the writer and his mom are preparing Chile Rellenos as he's coming out to his mom. So... I, I found myself more curious and in in, in, in list, just listening to stories and after taking an oral history class too, I'm interested in in getting to know the community uh, more through their through their experiences uh, with food to see you know how uh, or to, to just kind of imagine what does queer food studies look like because I I even remember um, one of my my mentors for my thesis. Um, she would say pretty often, she would be like, I don't see how queer and food studies comes together. Like she, <laughs> she was like, you would never, I don't think I would ever think of, you know, like how they would come together. Um, it's an ambitious project, she would say. And, and definitely like revisiting these topics, I can see why now. <laughs> um, but I, I'm excited because I feel like there's something there. Um, one of the writers that I, I, I love, uh, and that I'm revisiting is Rigoberto Gonzalez, who used to write book reviews for the El Paso Times. Um, and one of his memoirs, he says that, you know, he wanted to tell, to tell his grandma that he became afraid of his own hungry gay body. Those were his words. And rereading it this semester and like stumbling upon that sentence, like, how did I not see that before? That's really interesting. My hungry, being afraid of your hungry gay body and, and what that means. And so. Um, I feel like there's something there, and I, I can't wait to find out more. Well, thank you both for sharing your journeys into food studies. Um, is there anything else that you need to that you would like to add before? I the think class? just one thing. I think El Paso as a community is a it, it's a very unique and beautiful space, and I don't think that having grown up here and lived here and just kind of been in it for so long that I ever really saw the beauty of it until I left, and then I had to come back. Um, and and I did appreciate it while I was here, but not the way that I do now that I've left. But the food landscape within El Paso, the cultural in the culture in El Paso is super unique. And I think that 
unfortunately, you kind of have to leave to kind of appreciate it when you come back. But um, there aren't very many places like it. Um, I don't know if there are any other places specifically like it, but I think our specific location on the border in between these two nations and then the history that's embedded there, the types of foods that we have, the food culture that we have, the preparation that we and the ingredients that we have, I think it's just super, El Paso is really blessed to have that available to them. And I think when it's so there, you you kind of take it for granted. But leaving and coming back has made me really value it. So when I come back home, I start naming what restaurants am I going to go to? What dishes do I want to prepare? Uh, what ingredients do I want to pick up? Because it's just, it's so unique that it's hard to kind of uh, recreate it and find it anywhere else. One of the most important things I, I've learned about f- or learned from food studies is that, you know, of course, everybody eats. And I think I've always like read, I always read that line somewhere in like some food studies article, you know, it's always mentioned, everybody eats. And as often as as that's written, I think it's always important to say it because that means that everyone knows something about food. And I think, you know, being able to listen to some of the food stories that you know, you've you and your students have 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 listened to and recorded for El Paso food uh, voices. It's it always reminds me of that that there's something really precious that everyone holds about food, and it rem- it tells me that like I'm never gonna know as a food studies person and a budding food studies scholar, I'm never gonna know everything about food and food studies. Um, but if I listen to what everyone has to say. You know, I, I get a, I get to I get to share a piece of that with everyone and I get to share what I know with them. And and food studies is very collaborative. And and and, and, and again, just it shows me the importance of listening. And, and I think that that's what a project like El Paso Food Voices has really taught me and like reminds me of all the time. Like you're not going to know everything, but if you share what you know, people are going to be willing to share what they know. Kind of like a meal, like <laughs> um food studies puns, but uh, um, (laughs) that sharing of knowledge is very much like, you know, sharing a meal and listening. Well, thank you so much. That's a wonderful moment in which to end, actually. Um, Once again, I want to thank both of our guests, Dr. Consuelo Salas and PhD student Josh Lopez, for sharing the journey into food studies um, and for allowing us to have the opportunity to listen to your journey about food studies. Thank you so much. El Paso Food Voices was created by Meredith E. Abarca, Professor of Food Studies and Literature at the University of Texas at El Paso. Produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. Music composed by Jake Jacobs. To learn more about how food practices, memories, and stories shape a city's history, culture, and its character, please visit us at El Paso Food Voices. Thank you. Thank you.